0: Amen. Amen. As you're seated, join me in prayer. Father, as we come to you this morning, we do give you thanks that through the blood of Jesus that he shed for us on the cross, that your wrath has been completely satisfied and that we are accepted at your table that we are a part of your forever family. And God, I and we together this morning give you thanks. We thank you for this provision that you've made for us, that in Christ you were reconciling the world to yourself, and we give you thanks. We give you praise today. And Father, as we come before you, thankful for the gospel, thankful for this incredible salvation. We pray. We pray together, Father, first for the Southern Baptist Convention that will convene this next week in Nashville. And as a Southern Baptist congregation, God, we lift that meeting to you. And we pray that you would be at work. God, there are so many um, fault lines, so many issues that are to be addressed and father i pray and we as a congregation pray that you would be glorified in that meeting that decisions would be made that would be wise that that there would be a spirit of love and a spirit of grace as we seek to hold fast to the truth that you've given us in your word and particularly in your son jesus christ god We trust you and we pray for this convention because in many ways it's a representation on some levels at least of what's happening in our nation among professing followers of Jesus Christ. God, would you bring unity? Would you bring hope through this meeting? And Father, I pray that you would protect all of your people throughout this nation Particularly, we pray for your churches that you would protect us and help us to avoid falling off the straight and narrow path on one side or the other. Protect us from falling off on the right side by demanding uniformity when it comes to secondary and tertiary issues things that aren't plain, things that aren't explicit in your word. God, would you protect us from truth without grace? But Father, would you also protect us from going off the road on the left side? Protect us from grace without truth. Father, help us to not compromise. Help us as your people scattered throughout this nation. Help us to be faithful to Jesus who was full of grace and truth. And so make us as your people, people who are characterized by both, neither without the other. And so, Lord, we lift this to you. We also think about the Will Graham celebration in September and continue to pray for this great opportunity for this area. We pray, Father, that there would be many who would come to faith in Christ through that particular event and effort. And bless us as we participate in that with many other churches throughout this region. Help us as individuals who profess Christ to identify people that we know, who are in our circle of influence, that we come in contact with regularly, who as far as we know don't know you, and help us to pray for them, help us to invite them, help us to take the initiative to offer to take them to this gathering, and God, use it so that many souls might come to faith in Jesus Christ. And as I think about that, and as we together think about that opportunity that's before us, we pray that you would bless our church and help us in the area and work in us in the area of evangelism. God, help us as members and believers of this gathering this morning. I pray that you would work in us so that we would have a genuine burden for family members and for co-workers and for neighbors who don't know Christ and who haven't trusted in him, God, would you show us how we can build a bridge of relationship to people who are outside of your kingdom so that we might lead them by loving them and by sharing the truth of the gospel with them to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. God, I pray for the fruit, we pray for the fruit of many conversions through our church in the coming months. And Father, we also think of our membership meeting tonight. We pray that you would guide us in this meeting as we gather and take care of a membership matter that's significant. God, would you bless and would you work through this meeting. Help us to do your will. Help us to follow your word and to trust in you. And we pray for restoration and for your blessing upon our congregation. And finally, Father, we pray as we've just been singing That you would help our hearts, those of us who profess our faith in Jesus Christ, help our hearts to be shaped more and more by the cross. Help our hearts to be shaped by the cross because it is the ultimate example of both justice and grace. And God, you are a God of both justice and grace. And so help us to be a people of justice and grace. And we give you thanks that Jesus on the cross bore your wrath. That sin deserves, Father, that He endured the just punishment that we all deserve as sinners, so that in grace He might reach out to those who would believe and save, and save those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, work, I pray, work in our hearts today and in the coming days and weeks as your people so that more and more our lives and our hearts are shaped by your cross. We want to live cruciformed lives. We want the cross to be at the center of our hearts and of our church and of our lives for your sake and for your glory. And we lift these requests and these petitions to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to take your Bible this morning and to find Psalm 58. Psalm 58, and we're going to be talking this morning about the fact that there is a God who judges on earth. There is a God who judges on earth. As you're turning to Psalm 58, let me get you to think about a question. What is God like? What is God like? Like, there is no more fundamental or important question for us to answer as those who gather this morning, and for many of us, particularly, who claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior. What is God like? If you were to ask people that this next week, you would possibly have some who might answer you or begin their answer to your question like this. I like to think of God as being, and then they begin to tell you the things that they like to think that God is like. One of the things I've discovered is when I hear people use that language, I like to think of God as being, and then begin to tell you, what you're going to most likely hear when they begin like that is this, you're going to be hearing their opinion based on their preferences rather than God's revelation based on the scriptures. One of the things I could almost guarantee you also is that if a person begins an answer to that kind of question by saying, I like to think of God as being, you can be relatively certain that they will not describe God even in part in their answer in the way that he is presented in the psalm that we're going to be looking at together this morning. Psalm 58, there is a God who judges on earth. I'm actually reading this morning, as I will read here in just a moment, Psalm 58 from a book entitled Devotional Psalter. And what it is, is it's a book that contains all 150 of the psalms and with each one there is a devotion after the psalm. I want us to begin this morning by reading just a part of the devotion on Psalm 58, after I read Psalm 58. So follow along as we walk through, for the first time, Psalm 58. This is a psalm of David, and it begins like this. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom, like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear. So that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrow, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail... That dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may He sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when they see the vengeance. He will bathe His feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. There is a God who judges on earth. Now listen to just a part of the devotional that goes with the psalm and the psalter devotion that I have this morning. It begins like this. The graphic... Almost savage imagery of this psalm catches us off guard. Surely the Bible is too holy a book for such violent retribution toward the wicked at the hands of the righteous. Such a response is understandable, but we must take the scripture whole, or else not at all. If we received only those parts of the Bible that we found, palatable, we would be in fact not sitting under the Bible in submission but standing over it in authority, making ourselves the final arbiter of what God could say. We would become the teacher, God the pupil. We must take all of God's word not just parts of it, as we seek to understand the answer to the question, who is God? Who is God? Let's look together for just a few minutes this morning at Psalm 58 that we've just read through together. In this psalm, David addresses two different groups, you could say. In verses 1 through 5, he addresses the wicked judges who are like gods. And then in verses 6 through 11, he addresses the God who is judge of the wicked. Let's look at verses 1 through 5 together and see what David says as he addresses the wicked judges who are like gods. Now, who he is addressing here are those who are men who have power and are in places or positions of power under King Saul. And David, who is writing this psalm, is being pursued by Saul and those that King Saul have, have been sent by King Saul to find and to kill David because David has already been told that he is going to be, by Samuel the prophet, the king of Israel. And so Saul is jealous And delirious, you might even say, with anger and jealousy. And so he is seeking the life of David. And it's in that context that this psalm is written. And it's written to those who are a part of this kingdom in terms of leadership, those who have places of leadership, those who have positions of authority in Saul's kingdom. Keller says, This about Psalm 58, political corruption is not a new phenomenon. And we see it. That's the background, the backdrop to this psalm. Because sin has entered the world, rulers tend to normally rule out of self-interest. It's easy for people in power to, to do that. And for us this morning who maybe don't have those kinds of prerogatives and powers, it would be easy for us to think that we would be oblivious to and we would not be affected by the temptations of power. But if we think that, we probably just don't know our souls very well. So let's look as David addresses the wicked judges who are like God's. Notice, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, David is speaking to them. David is speaking to them in verses 1 and 2. That is, these wicked judges who are like gods. Verse 1, do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? And the term here is used to mean mighty lords. It's a term that means people who have or those that have great power among people. They're like God's among the people he continues in verse 1 do you judge the children of man uprightly now these rulers ruling with Saul were not judges strictly in the way that we think of judges but similar because they had the prerogative and the power because of their authority to hand down decrees and to make decisions and so they would make judgments I can't help as I read this first verse and think about those who are in places of authority who don't judge and decree things that are upright. And I particularly think of victims who haven't gotten justice in the courtrooms of our world. And maybe there are some of you here today, maybe it's never gone to court the thing that you may be thinking about in this moment that you've experienced in terms of violence or injustice. But we want you to understand, and this psalm helps us to understand, that there is a God of justice. And that can give you some relief and the opportunity to heal if you have not and see no hope of getting justice in this life and in this world as it exists today. Verse 2 continues, No, that is, they don't decree what is upright, or judge in a way that's upright. No, your hearts, in your hearts, you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. So in verses 1 and 2, he is speaking to them. Then in verses 3 through 5, David is speaking about them, that is, these wicked judges, but he seems to go a little broader in these next verses. Because he just refers to the wicked. And so in verses 1 and 2, he's talking about the wicked in power, it seems. And then in verses 3 through 5, he's talking about the wicked in general, which would, of course, include those who are in power. Notice what he says in general about the wicked as he speaks about them. Verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb... They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom, like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ears, so that it does not hear the voice of the charmers or the cunning enchanters. Now, David does several things in these verses as he speaks about these wicked judges as well as the wicked in general. First of all, he says this about them, the wicked in general, including the judges, that they go astray from the womb, that they are estranged from the womb, rather, and that they go astray from birth speaking lies, and then he begins to use some analogies to communicate what the wicked are like, and particularly maybe these judges who have power and are wicked. He compares them to serpents in verse 4. Now, if you read your Bible, you can't help but think about the fact that he's probably here indirectly, at least, associating them with the serpent, who came into the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 in our Bibles and tempted Adam and Eve to sin, and as a result of their sin, human beings fell. We fell away from God. It also seems like he's not only saying that Saul and those who are working with him, either directly or indirectly, actively or passively, in Saul's administration, that they are to be associated with the seed of the serpent that's spoken about there in the early chapters of Genesis. And that David, the one who is a man after God's own heart and who is to be king, that he and those who are with him are like the seed of the woman. And of course, ultimately, we know that Jesus was the seed of the woman, and he came through David. He was a descendant of King David. In other words, they're... Two groups of people in the world. And there are many different ways to define or describe those two groups of people, but one way would be the seed, is, the seed of the serpent, Satan, and the seed of the woman, Eve, and those descendants who ultimately are those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he speaks of their venom in verse 4. Their poison, because their malice and their rage, is deadly like poison, particularly if you're in a place of power, but that can be true of a wicked person who's not in a place of power. It can be deadly. And their people, these judges particularly, who are like the adder or the ass that that stops its ears, so that he can't hear the voice of the charmers. The idea is, you've seen snake charmers maybe on videos, on YouTube and they seem to be able we've discovered it's not necessarily the, the sound, because snakes can't hear, for the most part. It's not the sound as much as it is the movement. But anyway, the charmers are able to calm, to some extent the serpents, the cobras. But these judges are more like the asp who particularly is unable to hear and can't be charmed. In other words, people come to these judges with genuine requests for mercy and for justice and they aren't heard. And they rule unjustly. They're guilty of violence. Now I want us to learn a couple of things particularly from verses 2 through 5 about sin. Because this psalm is primarily about two things. It's about sin and wrath. And I want you to see, particularly in the first part of this psalm, some things that we can learn about sin and the human race. First of all, we see in verse 2 where it begins. It begins in the heart. That's where sin begins. Notice the phrase in verse 2. No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. That's where it starts. Sin starts in the human heart. And what the psalmist is saying here is said very clearly later in the Old Testament by Jeremiah when he says, The heart is desperately wicked. Wicked. Jeremiah, speaking for God, says that about our hearts as human beings. Our hearts are desperately wicked. That's where it starts. Also notice in verse 2 how it is seen. One of the ways that it's seen is in violence. It says in verse 2, Know in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence. Violence on earth. This is not the only evidence of or demonstration of the fact that our hearts are desperately wicked. But it's a very vivid one, right? Violence that we see on earth. Think about gang violence in the cities. Think about domestic violence in homes. Think about those who are victims of physical abuse sexual abuse, verbal and emotional abuse. This is evidence of the fact that our hearts are desperately wicked. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, that's not me. I've not done anything like that. But I want you to understand that the roots that can bear that kind of fruit in you and me are there And maybe just to help you see that, let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you ever have a bad temper? What about road rage? You ever scream at someone for cutting you off or doing something you think they shouldn't do if they were a good driver? What I'm saying to you is, even if you don't go to the extent that I've just referred to, we all have the roots of these things in our hearts Did you realize that some of the best statistics that are out there tell us that one out of three girls is sexually abused as a child in our nation, and one out of four boys are sexually abused in their childhood in this nation? Also something this week that I learned that I thought was incredibly frightening was the fact that in our nation every day, there are 20,000 calls nationwide to domestic violence hotlines. Violence. It's an evidence. Even though it may be muted because of our backgrounds and for different reasons, violence, rage, this is evidence of sin. But I want you to see something else as we continue to think about what we learn here about sin. We see where it begins in the heart. We see how it's seen in violence. But as we go on to verse 3, we see when it begins, not only where it begins in the heart, but when it begins. From the womb, from birth, that's when it begins. What that means is, and what we're seeing here is what the Bible teaches elsewhere, and that is that we are all born sinners, We are all born in sin. David himself, who wrote this psalm, also wrote Psalm 51 when he's confessing his sin to God. And he says, in sin did my mother conceive me. What he means is, from conception, I had a sinful nature. It's a part of who we are now because of sin entering the world. So where it begins? In the heart. When it begins, from the womb. And then how it is seen. Here we're told it's seen in lies. Now maybe you couldn't identify with some of the violence that I just spoke about. But all of us can identify with this. No one has to teach a child to lie. Children are born with something that causes them to by nature deceive if they need to for their own interests. That's how we come into the world. And so using a little hyperbole here, it talks about the fact that we go astray from the womb or from birth speaking lies. Now obviously as soon as we're born we can't speak. So it's hyperbole, but what it's saying is that as soon as we can, we start deceiving with our words and we begin lying. It's nature, it's our nature. It's who we are. The psalmist also says this in Psalm 116, I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. That's true. That's true. There's not a person in this room this morning who's not a liar. Not a one. Not even the guy standing here, or maybe I should even say especially the guy, including the guy standing here. There's not one. Now, this is an important thing to think about. When we look at the first five verses of this psalm, we are given a portrait of the wicked, particularly those who are in power, with King Saul. But we not only are looking at a portrait, guess what else we're looking at? A mirror. We're seeing ourselves. This is who we are by birth, by nature. We are strangers to God and strayers from God from birth. That's what verse 3 makes very clear. And this is reinforced. What this psalm teaches is reinforced in the New Testament. Let me just read a few verses in Romans chapter 3. And listen for some of the similarities in what we see in the psalm that we've read so far, the part of the psalm we've read so far. Here's Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God that is in ourselves. All have turned aside... Together they have become worthless, meaning the human race. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's the heart of it. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now in verses 6 through 11, as we continue, David addresses the God who is judge of the wicked the God who is judge of the wicked, and we're going to move through this quickly. In verses 6 through 9, David is asking for God's justice. Asking for God's justice. Verse 6, Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. He doesn't say, God, help me break the teeth in their mouths. He says, God, break the teeth in their mouths. He's laying this before God. By the way, Old lions lose their teeth. And so he specifically here is comparing these judges and the wicked in general, all of us, to young lions who have sharp and long teeth and powerful jaws. Can do a lot of damage to other people, particularly those who have power. Verse 7, let them vanish, that is the wicked, let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail, the wicked, that dissolves into slime like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner and your, than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he, God, sweep them away. So David is here asking God to sweep away the wicked to sweep them away. He wants them to vanish from the earth. He wants them, when they have the intention of doing harm, for that to fail, to not be successful. He wants them to enter darkness. That is, he's praying for their death. And he's saying, essentially, sooner rather than later. That's his prayer. Now, here's the question. Is it wrong to pray this way is it wrong to pray this way two weeks ago when we began the series I began to touch on this and I wanna re-emphasize one or two things as we answer this question this morning is it wrong to pray for vengeance is it wrong to pray for justice when you've been hurt I think the answer is no it's not one because when you do this you are asking God to do something instead of doing something yourself. Right? Instead of taking revenge, taking the law into your own hands, you might say, you're asking God to work. You're asking God to work. And I would also say, no, it's not wrong to pray this way because we all at times feel this way. And it's never wrong to take to God what is really in our heart. So often as Christians, we think we've got to pray edited prayers to God. Please, learn from the Psalms if you don't learn anything else from the Psalms. We are not supposed to edit our prayers to God. Our prayer should be unedited. We should spill our soul to God. Because that's what it means to have a relationship with God. Not to pretend in prayer to be someone or something that you're not. But to be who you really are before God because it's in that way that God changes us and strengthens us and gives us grace and teaches us. No. It's not wrong to pray this way. Also, for this reason, because the desire for justice is not in itself... Wrong at all it's actually something that we have because we're made in the image of God who is just who is just it's not wrong I mentioned earlier that there may be some of you this morning who have had something horrible happen in your past something painful and there hasn't been any kind of justice there hasn't been any kind of recompense it's not wrong to express to God what you truly feel. And one of the great things about a psalm like this is it gives some liberation to those who are believers, who see no hope of justice in this life, who see someone who continues to be praised that you know is evil because you've experienced it firsthand. This is... Truth should set us free, or it's, it's the way that God can begin to and continue over time to set us free from things that have happened because we know that justice is not wrong. It is a part of who God is. I read this week about a father who was doing family devotions, and he was reading in this particular devotion time a psalm, not this psalm, but one that was a little bit like this psalm, that talks about justice and vengeance and wrath And after he finished reading the psalm, his oldest son said to him, Father, do you think it's right for a good man to pray for the destruction of his enemies? The father paused and he thought he wanted to frame his answer as best he could. And this is what he said, Son, if an assassin should enter the home at night and murder your mother and then escape, and the sheriff and citizens were all out in pursuit... Trying to catch him, would you pray to God that they might succeed and arrest him, that he might be brought and that he might be brought to justice? The little boy paused for a moment and said, Oh, yes, but I never saw it that way before. I did not know that that was the meaning of these Psalms. Folks, that's a great answer for a child, and it's a great answer for all of us. It's not wrong. It's not wrong. And yet there may be many things in our hearts that are wrong as we're asking those things. But it's still right and best for us to ask, to express what's in our heart. So we see David is asking for God's justice, 6 through 9. And then finally in verses 10 and 11, David is assured of God's justice. He's assured that this is going to happen ultimately. Verse 10, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance He will bathe his feet, that is the righteous, in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. I mentioned this two weeks ago. Christians long for and pray for Jesus to return. We long for Jesus to come back. And to establish new heavens and a new earth where there are no tears, where there are no wars, where there is no death. We long for that. We pray for that. Jesus, come quickly. The Bible even has that language. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Do you realize? I mentioned this a few weeks ago. When we pray for the second coming of Jesus, we are. At the same time, praying something that will result in the wrath of God coming upon the wicked because that's going to happen at the same time. You see, Jesus is going to come, the righteous are going to be rewarded, but the wicked are going to face God's wrath. It's not wrong to long for that which we hope for as God's people. All that God has promised us as God's people. It's not wrong at all for us to long for that, but understand what that means for those who have it and who don't trust in Jesus and turn from their sins. Verse 10 is perhaps the hardest part of this psalm to read. The righteous will rejoice... When he sees the vengeance, he will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. I think what that verse is saying is this. In ancient times when there was a war, two armies were fighting each other. One would win and one would lose. And after the one that won had, in fact, won, they would walk among the corpses of those that they had defeated in this battle... And they would take things, valuable things that these dead enemies that they have now killed had amulets, other kinds of valuables, necklaces and robes and so forth. That would be their reward. I think the reason that this language is used here, and by the way, bathing their feet in blood means that their feet would be wet with blood because they're walking among these corpses to take things as their rewards. I think this is included here because when Christ comes, these two things are connected. They're connected. God's reward for the righteous is connected to God's wrath on the wicked. That's when it will happen, when Christ returns, when Christ comes back. So very quickly, let me help you see Not only what this psalm teaches us about sin, but also what it teaches us about justice. And we've seen this. God is a God of justice. There is a God who judges on earth. There is. He judges sin, which begins in the heart and begins from the womb and deserves and demands God's wrath and God's judgment and eternal death. That's what we deserve For our sins, but on the cross, on the cross, Jesus endured the wrath and the death that our sin deserves and demands. You see, we go astray from birth. We were born in sin, so what do we need? We need a new birth. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Someone else put it this way, if you're born once, you'll die twice. If you're born physically, you'll die physically and eternally. If you're born twice, you'll die once. If you're born physically and spiritually, you'll only die physically, and then you'll live eternally. We were born in sin... And so we need a new birth. And sin begins in our heart. And so we need a new heart. And that's exactly what the new covenant promises through faith in Jesus Christ. We receive a new heart. We become new creations. We become new creations when we repent of our sins and when we trust in Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior. I want to urge you this morning, if you haven't already, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Plead mercy. That's the only plea. That's the only plea that you have. You sure don't want justice. Ask God for mercy through Jesus and through his death on the cross for our sins. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ as your one and only Savior. One of the most well-known early Christians was Augustine. And Augustine, before he became a Christian, had a praying mother who prayed for him constantly. But before he became a Christian, he lived a life of incredible Promiscuity and sin, sexual immorality. And one day after he was converted, he was walking down the street and he saw a woman that he had been close to before. He walked right past her without even looking at her or saying a word. And she said, Augustine, it is I. And without turning around or looking back, he said, Yes but it is not i that is it's not the me that you knew that's not who's that's not who i am anymore i'm a new person he had experienced a new birth he had a new heart and his life was changing that's what god can do for you if you trust in christ as your savior and turn from your sins and follow him as your lord let's bow Lord Jesus, we know that you are coming one day and those of us who've trusted in you, we long for that day. We long for that day. And God, as we prayed together earlier, help our hearts, if we confess Christ, help our hearts to more and more be shaped by the cross that is shaped by both justice and grace. God, you are the God of justice and you are the God of grace and in Jesus Christ you endured the justice that our sins deserve, the wrath that our sins deserve so that we could be forgiven, so that you could show us grace and continue to be righteous. And so, Father, I pray today that as we anticipate the coming of the Lord Jesus and what is promised, that we would continue, if we've trusted in Christ, to be transformed and shaped by the cross and be transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. And Father, I pray for those here who are unsure about where they stand before you. I pray that today they would run to you, that they would come to you urgently and plead for mercy for their sins, desiring to turn from their sins and trusting in Jesus' death as their only hope of forgiveness and salvation. We do long, Lord Jesus, for you to come. But we long not just for your justice, but we long for your grace for those who don't yet know you. God, lead them to repentance. Family members that we care about, co workers and friends. God, we lift this up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.